The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Welcome to another episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Nicholas Leiter, Senior Content Editor for the magazine. In this episode, you'll hear from Casey Conway, CCIM Institute Chief Economist and Director of Research and Corporate Engagement at the Alabama Center for Real Estate. In his conversation with Larry Guthrie, CCIM Institute Director of Communications, he provides a fantastic capital markets update and what lies ahead for 2020, along with five pro tips for industry professionals to help them successfully navigate commercial real estate in the new year. Thank you for joining me, Casey. Thanks, Larry. Happy New Year. Uh, there is so much to cover today. I know I just want to jump right in, but let me take a moment for um, those who aren't familiar. Since 2018, Casey has authored the Commercial Real Estate Insights Report Series in his sixth report for the Institute, the fourth quarter report for 2019. Uh, you shared a pretty fascinating capital markets update. I mean, I know it's it's kind of odd putting the words fascinating and capital markets in the same sentence, but um, the insights were pretty powerful, and I'm excited to share those with everyone. 2019 uh, ter- turned out to be pretty pretty good. We have a lot to lot to celebrate, and I think 2020, looking forward, I think uh, maybe the uncertainty premium is coming out of the market, getting us all back to back to work in the first half of the year, putting capital to work. Sounds good. So let's dive right in, then, shall we? You bet. So looking back on last year, if you had to sum up the capital markets in 2019 in just three words, what would those be? Well, you know, unfortunately, I, I asked, had to recently watch uh, some episodes of Gomer Pyle with my with my young son, and I would have to say those three words would be surprise, surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and we can delve into why three surprises. Yes, please. Why why three? So what are the three surprises? Is there uh, one surprise bigger than the other? Yes, I don't know if I'd, I'd uh, calibrate them differently, but let's start with the first one. If you think back to a year ago, how much turmoil the markets were in, uh, the Fed had just given us the the Scrooge Christmas present of a fourth rate hike. The markets were convinced, oh my gosh, we're you know we're going to three, four, maybe five percent interest rates, and the the world was in total turmoil. And so, what followed in 2019? three rate cuts. So we basically undid all of the chaos that uh, the Fed put us in the markets through a year ago and uh, all the key um, metrics that they look at uh, for monetary policy uh, surprised even them. So I'd say the the first surprise goes to uh, monetary policy in the Fed with the uh, interest rates cuts. We, we didn't keep going higher. We went lower and the markets uh, sustained uh, life pretty well. The second one I'd say would be tariffs. Um, in the in the inversion of the yield curve, so generally, if we go back all the way to the you know preceding the Great Depression, tariffs have always indicated they don't turn out very well. We go into recession, and then accompanying them frequently, six out of the last eight times when we've had an inverted yield curve, we've gone into recession. Well, guess what? Neither of those materialized in 2019 uh, to the surprise of many. Uh, the tariffs implemented a, a year ago, summer summer of uh, 2018. And we weathered through those thinking, um, you know, that companies wouldn't be able to, to manage uh, prices or supply chain. And we found out through corporate earnings was they surprised us. They figured out how to manage supply chain, rework it, and how to deal with finding other efficiencies, 
corporate earnings came in real well and the tariffs did not put us into recession. And now it looks like we, we have not only a phase one agreement with China, but it looks like we also may even get USMCA passed. So a year ago, I was talking about that being probably the most important item we needed to get passed through for the health of our economy and the capital markets. And then the yield curve inversion, um, you know, it, it didn't materialize into a recession. We kind of have a somewhat healthy um, yield curve now with, you know, more than 20 basis points between the two year and the 10 year. So the two red flag, red warning signs in, in the economy that signal recession didn't materialize and, and we produced another good economic year. And then I'd say the third one was, you know, when we get, when we were all worried about entering the 10th year of economic recovery and this must have a milk carton expiration date on it and that we've got to go into a recession in 2019 and that we're overbuilding commercial real estate and all the metrics are going to deteriorate under the weight of all what I just talked about. And what we saw was just the opposite happened. Our bank stayed incredibly healthy. Uh, the net income from our from our banks uh, set the best level that it did uh, in, in more than a decade. Uh, so over our 5,000 banks are, are healthy. Their credit metrics are in really stellar shape. And if we look across the, the spectrum of different capital sources, the credit metrics are in really good shape. So if we look at uh, life companies, they only have three basis points of delinquency. If we look at the government-sponsored entities or enterprises like Freddie and Fannie, they're at like four and six basis points, respectively. The banks, only 45 basis points of delinquency. And the CMBS market set a new record uh, low of just 2.47%. So uh, the banks produced income. Uh, they uh, Even with rate cuts, their net interest margin didn't kill them and their credit metrics, they managed to keep them in good shape. So those are my three surprises. Uh, the rate cuts instead of rate hikes, tariffs and yield curve didn't put us into recession, and the capital sources kept on coming. We didn't overbuild commercial real estate, and the credit metrics maintained or sustained their really good levels. So looking to 2020 now, um, same question. What are those, are those the same three words you would have for 2020 or do you have three different words to kind of characterize what you're seeing, what you forecast for 2020? So good question. I'll mix it up. I could say surprise, 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 and still be right. You know, all economists want to be right. So I could, I could do the safe answer and do those three, but I'll give you three different ones that I think are going to really impact the markets this next year. The first one we're discovering just now uh, is Boeing. So with Boeing's problem with the 737 MAX, now idling production uh, come the first of the year, uh, I guess mid, mid late January, early February, we're going to discover just how impactful the, the this country's largest exporter is on our economy and our supply chain. Not everything's made in Seattle, Washington, or in Charleston, South Carolina. You've got engines made in places like Wisconsin. You've got interiors made for the cabin fuselages all over the world from China to the U.S. So we're, we're talking an impact that's much, much greater than what happened with the GM auto strike. So I think Boeing is going to be impactful, particularly for those markets that are uh, inextricably linked to the production of the 737 MAX. Um, so we'll have to keep an eye on those on those markets, and we're, we're just discovering who all they are. The second I would put out there 
is a term we've probably forgotten about that we reintroduce in this paper, and that's LIBOR transition. So in 2021, LIBOR goes away, and we have to have a substitute for it. So Fannie Mae has done a couple of uh, alternative, they call them SOFR um, alternatives, uh, securitizations involving their LIBOR substitute. Uh, Freddie Mac just did one this past week, um, but we have a long, long ways to go. And when you think of the the trillions and trillions of loans that are tied to a LIBOR index, the potential for disruption is really big. And, and really, 2020 is the year everybody has got to get on the same page and get uh, ahead of the curve on LIBOR transition in 2021, or we could see some very substantial disruption to the credit markets in the in the CRE finance in 2021. So I think LIBOR is going to LIBOR transition is going to get a lot more attention um, in the your existing kind of LIBOR contracts. Most of those are short term one to two year deals. You may find that um, by the mid part of the year you can't get a LIBOR indexed contract or product. So that's really impactful for construction loans. And I'd say the third one that we've got to have out there is the elections next November. Um, I think we get a break here in the first half of the year. I think everybody, um, uh, regardless of their philosophy, is a little fatigued with impeachment. It looks like that'll all wind down uh, one way or the other here in January. We'll get a break there. But I think by late summer, Labor Day, the electorate will begin to dial in. We'll begin to see who the candidates are. And... um, I think that they could be very, very disruptive because either either way the elections go, um, they hold big implications uh, for, for our real estate industry. Our, our industry benefited very much from the 2017 uh, tax bill, uh, one, of first, one of the first initiatives by President Trump. So um, does that get unwound if the elections go the other way? There's a lot of things we need to, to keep our fingers on. Opportunity zones are a big part of that. 2017 tax act. So there's a lot the elections hold that impact our industry that we probably won't focus in on until late summer, Labor Day next year. And what I fear is that this uncertainty premium, which is kind of what we've dealt with a lot of last year, this 2019, over um, tariffs, could come back into the market. So I'm very bullish about the first half of the year. And I'm a little more concerned about the second half of the year as LIBOR transition becomes more real, gets harder to get those contracts since they don't want to have those running beyond its expiration. And then I think we're not knowing the uh, full impact of Boeing's um, uh, shutdown of the 737 production and the elections. So those would be my three surprises. Just to be clear, are you saying uh, disruption or recession, or do you think it's just going to be some disruption in regions based on Boeing's impact? Yeah, good clarifying question. So I'm still not forecasting or seeing a recession. We're cutting into the new year with really strong fundamentals, 2% GDP, another year of over 2 million jobs being produced, really strong December jobs report, uh, strong small business optimism, consumer optimism. What I termed last week um, in my little um, LinkedIn blog in the uh, University of Alabama the piece, I called it the naughty and the nice elves. And one of the really nice elves was the optimism elves. So all the things that drive the economy and real estate, the optimism, uh, those, those stay intact. What I think begins to happen is just as the uncertainty of tariffs caused companies to maybe slow down or defer decisions, uh, you know, maybe whether they're going to defer building a new e-commerce warehouse or 
expand mm-hmm. another factory, they they put those things on a slower trajectory. And I think that begins to build in the second half of the year if things like Boeing doesn't get settled, uh, if LIBOR becomes disruptive and we don't have enough of the LIBOR substitute contracts in place to replace those. Those those events really trigger in the second half of the year. So I think first half of the year we're okay. Second half of the year is when we probably get a little um, – heartburn and need to and need to be uh, preparing for getting all that business done in the first half of the year. Maybe a little more challenging in the second half of the year. Fair enough. So I guess maybe the, the bigger question here for everyone in the industry is, you know, you've kind of taken us through the backdrop and what the capital trends are going to be in 2020, given all these factors at play. In the report, you also detail five tips on how you can navigate commercial real estate in 2020. Tell me more about those. Sure. So one of the first ones we talk about is kind of the search for viable assets, kind of given the landscape that it's getting harder and harder to find, uh, you know, a population of properties to transact in. So what generally happens historically is people uh, throw more money at a limited number of transactions and they overpay. And so I, I think the thing that could help many of us in our industry is to look beyond maybe just the core markets or their love affair with industrial and multifamily right now and look at really some of those emerging secondary markets that are tied to logistics or um, manufacturing or, um, you know, uh, you know, other areas of the, uh, of the economy. So we have many good secondary markets um, that fit this bill that the foreign capital markets have been telling us for a couple of years um, they're not adverse. The foreign debt and equity capital sources are not having uh, a, a difficult time going to secondary markets like a Raleigh, North Carolina, or a Phoenix, or a San Antonio, or a Tampa, Florida, or a Nashville. So I think um, as we find a narrower population of properties to trade or buy or invest in, we may need to um, be thinking about how we can expand our horizon, look at not only different geographies, and really how viable many of these secondary markets are, but also look at property type, look beyond industrial multifamily, look at, um, you know, things like, um, you know, uh, Green Street Advisors as manufactured home communities are the number one appreciating property type in the last three years. But student housing seems pretty good. Uh, I'd be a little more nervous about self-storage. I think they're a little bit overbuilt. So that's the first one is, Really, probably more homework is going to be required to find assets to put your capital to work in. And if you just go to the old the old hat trick of paying more in a lower cap rate, you may pay the price for that in 2021. So I'd look, I'd broaden my horizons. Um, the second is, you know, doing your homework on your pricing, ensuring that your assets, although we're in a market that's fully priced that we're not um, that we're not overpriced. And so let me give a good example here. You know, a cap rate for a commercial property is the inverse of a stock multiple. So today we're running at about an 18 and a half um, times price earnings multiple. So the inverse of that is about a five and a half cap rate. So if we look at where the market is and the stock markets, you know, kind of at record levels, we're fully priced. So if you want to get more aggressive and start buying assets below a five and a half cap rate, you're betting that the market has got to go kind of the greater fool theory. It's got to go to a 19 or 20 price earnings ratio. I'm, I'm a little doubting of that. I think it can stay healthy. 
but I don't know if it's going to go much further than the 18 and a half or 19 multiple. So I think doing your homework, and I think what we're going to find is less of the of the value in the price increase in properties is going to come from, say, cap rate compression or them going lower and more from really uh, improving the NOI performance. So looking at assets and determining where you can tweak expenses, where you can restructure your rents and get more more income out of assets is um, is going to be quite, uh, quite important. And I think one of the things we found, particularly with REITs, was the real estate investment trusts <clears throat> have kind of been on the fence whether they should, you know, double down and buy more assets, whether they should pull back, or whether they should maybe put capital to work on their own investment, uh, their own portfolio. And I think one of the things we're going to find is in a fully priced uh, market like we're at right now, more entities may decide to put capex to work in their existing portfolio. So they may en enhance that multifamily project or they may expand that warehouse or logistics facility. So I think, um, you know, really paying attention to the value uh, kind of metrics and how you determine price. And I think more of that price goal is gonna come from NOI improvement uh, than it is on cap rate compression. A third one um, that we've got in the report is understanding that while CRE debt capital is healthy today, there are some risks ahead where that capital may slow down. The first is the CRE concentration in banks. So we, we track from the New York Fed data and other entities. Um, uh, Reese, a uh, good friend of ours, Victor Kalanog, does a good job uh, on, on dissecting this information. And we're back to where we were before the 2009 financial crisis where more of our commercial real estate debt is held by banks. It's back over 50%. Uh, we've got over $4.3 trillion in total commercial real estate. That's a new record number up from the $4.2 trillion we had before the financial crisis. So what is the regulator reaction gonna be? And there's a couple of things going on behind the scenes with the regulators on banks that could be impactful here. There's a new, a new capital accord called CECL, that stands for the current expected credit loss. And what this does is it requires banks to be able to forecast their loan loss allowance based on the life of each loan and what happens. So they've got to get in the weeds now and go loan by loan and look at things like tenant turnover and, um, and refi risk exposure in a loan. So those things suggest banks might have to hold more capital. And given the ratio and how burned the regulators got from the financial crisis, I'm, I'm a little anxious that the regulators may be communicating here in the first half of the year that banks need to pull back from their CRE concentration levels. So I'd watch that one very carefully. There's no credit metrics to suggest there's any reason from a credit erosion. It's just a pure volume exposure. The second one is look at what's happening in bank mergers. We're finally now back after the financial crisis into a mode where banks are, are making good net income, they're healthy, their credit quality is good, and we're starting to see some consolidation. And I think we're going to see more more bank consolidation. We just concluded the biggest one of 2019, which was SunTrust and BB&T merging into a new bank called Truist that will move its headquarters in concentration from Atlanta to North Carolina. So um, North Carolina will become a very important a finance center for the Southeast. And what these two things, the second one we just had at the end of the year was Iberia and First Horizon 
which will be headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, creating a bank that's over $100 billion in size. So what this means, I think, for all of us in our industry is now is a time where we need to look at our capital relationships. And we may have a couple that are really good, but we need to look at diversifying those. So if something happens in a merger or the regulators pick on one bank because of their concentration over another bank and tell them you can't do any more CRE loans, that you have diversity. So I would be looking at these two things combined to look at 2020 in the first half of 2020 as a period where we diversify some of our credit and capital relationships. We may need more than um, more than one Uber relationship uh, or more than one Uber driver um, in there. We may want to add the Lyft app too to our, to our program. The fourth one that I think this is really the story out of 2019 and it, it really piggybacks off of the Amazon HQ2 search from almost two years ago is incorporating housing affordability as a criteria um, for where capital is deciding to invest. Capital has realized that it's not just the availability of workforce, but it's the availability, ability of that workforce to afford to live in an environment. So increasingly, the capital sources are telling us, whether it's at you know number of conferences I attended or uh, different studies that are out there from, you know, Perry, private equity, or even the National Association of Realtors on where cross-border capital flows are going, they're telling us housing affordability is an important um, metric for where capital is deciding to go. And so the latest Urban Land Institute Emerging Trends kind of showed this and showed that more migration is going from west to south and east, and they're finding workforce in um, southern and uh, mid-Atlantic and Midwest cities uh, that also have a big affordability. So I think if you're preparing an investment package to present to a, a, a debt source or an equity source, I would have some analysis on housing affordability. And we're all going to become incredibly well-versed by this time next year in a term called cost-burdened renter households. And so what this looks at is your really your income to your household costs. And when you get to ratios of like 40 or 50 percent of your income going to pay rent, you're in a cost burdened household and you can't do a lot else. So um, industry are looking at these decisions where they locate things, relocate things and where they decide to build. It's also the capital sources that are coming back in. The latest um, mortgage bankers study showed um, that the uh, that multifamily has overtaken um uh, industrial in terms of uh, where the preference outlook. Um, also, a NAREIT study that was just done here at the end of the year found that more of the permanent capital sources want to rotate maybe now out of their first choice industrial to back to multifamily. So I think we need to watch that. And the last one I'll throw out there that we put in the report that I think we all need to become very well versed in is it's an acronym. E is in Edward, S is in Sam, and uh, G is in Greg, ESG. And it stands for environmental and social governance. So many of us have had some orientation to it and really maybe it having more to do with the diversity of your workforce and how you're dealing with the S and G items. But the E item is very impactful. So if you're in um, primary markets, uh, cities like in New York that have a an older stock of product type, older office buildings, they're less energy efficient, they have a bigger carbon footprint, that markets like New York, Washington, D.C., if you go globally to London, 
they're passing policy and ordinances that require those property owners to lower their carbon footprint, their energy consumption, and it means fairly substantial capital spend um, uh, ratios and, and, and budgeting in those properties. And so one of the debates that's going on is if these policies that require older office buildings and older core markets to have to spend too much capital, what does that do to the overall IRR and, or investment return or yield on those assets? And could that start to drive capital maybe to newer markets where it's easier and more cost efficient to build a new LEED certified energy efficient warehouse or office building, say in Texas or Arizona or North Carolina, versus um, running the risk of the unknown on what the ESG requirements are going to be for energy consumption in an office building in, say, New York. So uh, it really impacts the IRR, and we haven't really been conditioned to think about that yet. But um, when I was at Pere, um Private Equity Real Estate, earlier uh, uh, this year in November in the fall, it was probably the number one topic. And it was the number one thing that investment funds, um, both equity and debt, were wrestling with, was trying to forecast an internal rate of return for buying properties in um, uh, large markets with older inventory. What was it going to cost to bring them up to an energy standard? So those were the big five we, we presented in the paper. Now, ESG is interesting because I know for we're a little behind on the curve on that one. I know it's uh, very much a, a cogent factor in Europe, and now it seems like it's finally arriving stateside after so many years of it being a buzz phrase, but never really um, playing into institutional or private equity real estate decisions. So you're really seeing that that is moving finally. You're correct. So Europe has led on this initiative first. Um and maybe primary because energy is a lot more expensive <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> um, and they, they they tend not to knock down all their historic buildings like maybe we do in the United States. You know, I, I live in Atlanta and anything that gets 25 years old in Atlanta, we tear it down and rebuild it, whether we paid the debt off or not. So that may that may have one one influence on it. Um, but the big cities to really pay attention to the U.S. right now are probably New York and Washington, D.C. Those two markets have been the most progressive in adopting at the local uh, zoning and ordinance levels, uh, building codes, if you want to renovate or even just move a tenant around and upgrade their tenant improvements, you may have to also upgrade energy systems and meet certain uh, energy reduction requirements over the next three years or five years. The problem is they keep moving the bar higher. So you buy, you buy the asset today, say in Washington or New York, and the requirement is you've got to reduce your energy consumption by 20% over the next three to five years. Well, that's great. But then a year from now, they say, well, that's not enough. We really need it to be 30%. So you've already gone through the capital expenditure and budget planning to put new energy efficiencies in to get you to a 20% level. And now the bar moves up another 50%. That's what investors are most concerned about. They're also concerned with how do you forecast the payback? there's a lot of different models and variations and interpretations of models as to what the payback is on some of these, whether you really realize the full energy efficiencies, uh, whether the tenants, um, you know, see the savings as well in their uh, in their cost pass through. So um, a lot of work to be done there. I think it's opportunities for organizations like the CCIM Institute, maybe collaborating with, the, uh, you know, IRAM 
um, on really, you know, from a property management standpoint, what are going to be the returns. But I think for those of our of our members and our audience that are in these bigger markets with a, a larger population of older assets, particularly office and hotel, the challenge for um, forecasting an IRR with ESG is going to be a real fluid thing. And what what I'm hearing from private funds is they don't want to take that risk. And so that capital is migrating to newer markets like, say, a Raleigh, North Carolina or, you know, an Austin and, you know, like Apple building their new headquarters in Austin. They can just build from the ground up a very efficient new lead certified building and not have to deal with, you know, ad- adaptive reuse and retrofitting in, you know, an old hundred year old building. So cost effectively, it's much cheaper and they also don't have the onerous requirements that are being put on them in, say, a New York or a Washington, D.C. Interesting. So it sounds like 2020 is going to be uh, a fun year for uh, CRE pros as they look to secondary markets, brush up on their NOI, DCF analysis skills, uh, really dive into ESG finally in a very meaningful way, and then that diversification of your capital sources. So uh, lots of lots of homework to be done to really make sure that you're successful, if I'm hearing it correctly. I would I would really put, you know, LIBOR transition um, on your top of your radar. That's not going away uh, as an issue. LIBOR goes away at the end of 2021. So most of those two-year contracts, you think about them for uh, construction loans or short-term bridge loans, they probably won't be writing LIBOR index contracts after mid next next year. So uh, it's really probably something that's facing you in six to nine months, not really another two years away. And then I think, um, you know, the, 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 the uncertainty premium, I think we have a good six months ahead of us where things calm down. Everybody that was worried about tariffs and trade, we now we're going to get USMCA done. We have a China deal done. Impeachment will be over with. I think a lot of that uncertainty capital that was on the sidelines the last three to six months um, really comes back in and wants to be put to use. So uh, clean off your desk over the holidays. Be ready to serve all those those new uh, client requests coming in. They're going to be looking for assets and um, and then uh, get, get them all done before uh, Labor Day because I think that uncertainty premium comes back in the market just because who knows how to forecast or predict what's going to happen in the elections. It's just a, it's like Brexit. If you you can tell us what's going to happen in Brexit, we can tell you what's going to happen in November, right? Fair enough. Well, Casey, this is uh, so much great information. It's a pleasure as always. Um, Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Uh, Thanks for hosting me and I hope everybody has a a good new year. And uh, remember, it's probably still surprise, 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 but it's probably that way every year. We just have to be on the lookout for what's going to surprise us and no better place than the CCIM Institute to help keep us aware of the surprises and how to navigate them. Keep showing your toes for sure. I'm looking forward to the next report too in the spring of 2020. So look for that. Um, And for those who would like to read the full commercial real estate insights report that we've been speaking about today or any of our past reports, just head over to CCIM.com backslash insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate.